Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who is accused of murdering his son Paul and his wife Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we concluded our look at the testimony of Jamie Hall, a forensic evidence analyst who examined the defendant's clothes on the night of the killings, as well as other items related to the murders. We also heard arguments from the parties related to the admissibility of testimony regarding gunshot residue evidence discovered on a blue rain jacket. The prosecution argued that there was sufficient evidence associating that jacket with the defendant. The defense argued that there was no such evidence. In this installment, we begin our coverage of day 10 of the trial, with a continuation of arguments regarding the rain jacket. We also look at the testimony before the jury of Jeannie Seconder, an employee of the defendant's law firm who discovered his financial misdeeds. As we have previously covered much of Ms. Seconder's testimony during in-camera hearings, we will condense our look at her trial testimony and only review segments which cover new ground or offer important nuance to the evidence that she presents. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It is the morning of February 7th, 2023, day 10 of the trial of Alex Murdoch. As we concluded our last episode, the prosecution and defense argued over the admissibility of testimony regarding gunshot residue on a blue jacket that was discovered in the home of the defendant's mother. As we begin today, Judge Clifton Newman invites the attorneys to offer any final arguments before he renders his decision as to whether the prejudicial impact of that gunshot residue evidence outweighs its probative value. He begins by asking about the testimony of the witness, through whom the blue rain jacket came in as evidence. Good morning. Any further comment or argument regarding uh, the witness from yesterday, the last Ms. Smith? Jim Griffin rises to make his argument on behalf of the defense. As Griffin speaks, he consults a transcript of Ms. Smith's testimony. Yes, Your Honor, we, we did get a transcript, overnight transcript of her testimony. It's, it's very rough, but on recross, if you will, at page 90, I asked her, have you ever seen this rain jacket before? And the rain jacket, I'd put a photograph into evidence, Defense Exhibit 87, and she says, no, Murdoch had that rain jacket with him when he came to Ms. Libby's home on the morning, I believe, a few days after the funeral. She says, no. And then I asked her, have you ever in this closet before, pointing to the state's exhibit, where they showed something folded up. She says, no, I haven't. And then I ask her, that is folded up there, do you? And she says, correct. And then I ask her, if that, if, if what's in that closet is this rain jacket, you've never seen Alec Murdoch with it, with this garment before, have you? And she says, no, I haven't. 
that's the testimony that, and that's on page 90 of the transcript that we got last night. Well, this morning we got it, Your Honor. All right. Uh, from the state. At Judge Newman's invitation, Creighton Waters responds on behalf of the prosecution. Uh, Your Honor, again, it, it is uh, fairly uh, rough to try to reach some of this, but I, as I would go back and point to page 65, uh, where the witness was asked to describe it. Again, she talked about uh, observing Alec coming to the house at an unusual time, a few days after the murders, carrying a bundled up blue vinyl item. And then even she was shown uh, a picture with it in that closet where it was recovered. And she said, did you see a blue object in the center? Yes. Does it look like, appear to look like the object you've described? Yes. You're saying yes. Is it the blue, blue vinyl? This. This appears to be the same thing you saw the defendant holding. It looks so, yes. And of course, then you had subsequent testimony uh, from the crime scene investigator about recovering that very item that proved to be the raincoat, which of course, if you hold it out, is, is very, very large and very much like a tarp. So I think many of these issues that the defense is raising are issues for jury argument and go to weight, not admissibility. Judge Newman renders his decision on the matter. The witness testified uh, on direct examination that the item in evidence appeared to be what Mr. Murdoch brought into the house that night. She said it was it was carrying something. It was in his arms. She, um, she said it was blue something that it looked something like a tarp, a blue something. But she did not clearly. She did not know what it was. It wasn't opened up, and she could not um, clearly identify the item, either as a tarp, as was shown by Mr. Griffin, or as a raincoat. Uh, she testified that the item presented was consistent with the apparent, consistent in appearance with what, what Mr. Murdoch brought into the home that night and what was shown in the photograph that was taken Certainly, Mr. Uh, Griffin did, a, uh, I would say, an effective job in cross-examination uh, in raising questions as to the credibility of the witness. Uh, that is ex the exact job that a jury has to do, that is weigh the credibility of the witness and to determine whether the testimony was consistent on the one hand or inconsistent on the other hand. And, and, and this witness's testimony was consistent uh, on the one hand and inconsistent on the other hand, but that does not make the testimony inadmissible. It doesn't render the evidence inadmissible. Whether evidence can be made relevant and admissible through inference, the inferences can be drawn from the evidence. It is circumstantial evidence that is a part of this case which suggests a fact by implication or, or inference. It'd be the appearance of the scene of a crime, a testimony that suggests a link to the crime. And if it can, facts can be proven through inference, facts and circumstances through which the witness testified on direct and cross-examination and taking the uh, testimony as a whole the test, the item is in evidence, I find that it is relevant in that it creates, through inference, facts that are in dispute in this case, 
And I deny the motion to strike her testimony, if that's what the motion is. Deny the motion to declare her testimony as being irrelevant. And the latest motion was that it's prejudicial or prejudicial or the results of an examination of the item is prejudicial. Uh, of course, we haven't had that testimony, but we have an item in evidence. Uh, this evidence was obtained through a search warrant. It is in evidence, and it's there for the jury's consideration. Certainly, once an item is in evidence, and as long as a chain of custody has been established, there can be testimony as to what it is or, or of what significance is it. And that's the stage we are here in these proceedings. And I deny the motion to strike it, to find it uh, for relevance purposes or uh, because it creates or uh, presents evidence favorable to the state, which automatically means it would be prejudicial to the defendant. After Judge Newman denies the defense's motion, Jim Griffin rises to clarify what that motion actually is. Your Honor, just to clarify, the motion that the defense made late yesterday afternoon was in advance of uh, Megan Fletcher, sled agent Megan Fletcher, testimony that, that there's GSR on the, the blue rain jacket. And so the motion was to, to prevent her from testifying as to the GSR, the testing of the rain jacket, because under 403, understand the court's ruling. I don't think they're going to call Ms. Fletcher first, but when she does take the stand, we will, for the record, renew the objection. Judge Newman interrupts the defense attorney to make clear that he understands the objection and is nevertheless overruling it on its merits. It's just a, a point. You say you object under 403, claiming it's more prejudicial than probative, and that's a fact-finding issue. That's an issue to be weighed not by me, but by the fact finder. I am to determine whether it's more prejudicial than, than probative. It is, it's, it's relevant, it's an apparently important enough that state seeks to, to use it. All evidence adverse to the defendant can be considered to be uh, prejudicial, but I do not find where the, any prejudice is substantially substantially outweighs its probative value. So I deny that motion. I certainly respect your objection. The witness sort of all over the place with her testimony um, and appeared to be confused. I'm not sure she, she obviously was not of the same level of unable to articulate her thoughts uh, through her emotions and, and through uh, this setting of being examined and cross-examined in this case, but the testimony taken as a whole shows that she identified the item as being consistent with what she thought the defendant brought in. She said he had something in it. It's important for enough for her to contact someone about it and and to um, that landed her here on the witness stand among other things, other reasons, but. Everything is noted and protected for the record. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. With Judge Newman having ruled against the defense's motion to prohibit South Carolina Law Enforcement Division agent Megan Fletcher from testifying to gunshot residue found on the blue jacket, the prosecution calls their first witness of the day, Jeannie Seconder. As we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, in episodes 48 through 51 of this eighth season of Jury Duty, we presented Ms. Seconder's testimony before Judge Newman during an in-camera hearing so that he could determine the admissibility of evidence related to the defendant's financial crimes. Consequently, we will condense our presentation of Ms. Seconder's trial testimony so as to spare our listeners redundancy. Ms. Seconder takes the stand sporting glasses with tortoise plastic frames and brown hair styled in a bob. She wears a beige blouse and a brown patterned scarf. Prosecutor Creighton Waters handles the questioning for the prosecution. Ms. Seconder first describes her financial operations role in Alex Murdoch's former law firm. PMPED. She explains Murdoch's facility with legal strategies that helped maximize the recovery in his cases, as well as his ability to form emotional bonds with clients. Ms. Seconder tells the jury she became concerned when Murdoch structured a fee payment in an irregular manner. Through her investigation, she became aware that the defendant had been diverting funds from the firm's trust account into his own personal accounts. Ms. Seconder further testifies that she confronted Alex Murdoch on June 7, 2021 about missing money, but was interrupted by a call about Alex's father's terminal illness. Out of respect for the defendant's grief, Ms. Seconder suspended her review of the matter. Later that same evening, Murdoch's wife and his son were murdered. Seconder tells the jury that later that same summer, after further evidence of Murdoch's fraudulent activity came to light, the firm conducted forensic audits and consultations with legal authorities and came to the conclusion that Murdoch had stolen significant amounts of money from his clients and from the firm. Through various exhibits, Ms. Seconder rehashes how Alex Murdoch stole the funds as well as the events that led to his resignation from the PMPED law firm. After Creighton Waters concludes his direct examination of Ms. Seconder, defense attorney Jim Griffin rises and asks Judge Newman to relay a limiting instruction to the jury. Thank you, Your Honor. Your Honor, could we renew our request for a limiting instruction? We went a half a day um, hearing all these financial misdeeds, and, and I don't want the jury to be lost on what the purpose is. Judge Newman offers the requested instruction to the jury. 
Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I gave this limiting instruction yesterday, and I will re repeat it, that this evidence of these uh, financial crimes and other crimes that you are now having, receiving testimony on it, it's regarding the contention that the defendant was involved in other criminal activity. Uh, that is not evidence or proof uh, of the offenses charged in the indictment, those charges being for murder, two counts, and possession of a weapon during the commission of a crime, two counts. This testimony is being allowed for the limited purpose in assisting the state in proving motive. You may not consider it for purposes of character of Mr. Murdoch, nor may you uh, consider it as evidence that he has the propensity to commit other crimes or that it is more likely that he committed the crimes with which he is currently charged. It's being allowed based on the state's representation that it helps explain the defendant's motives for which he is accused. And you may proceed. Jim Griffin then begins his cross-examination of Ms. Seconder by following up on some of the details of the financial crimes that the defendant committed, as well as the emotional impact of his betrayal on her personally. Jim Griffin next asks the witness about her interactions with the defendant around the time of the murders. When you learned on the 7th that his father was terminal or going back in the hospital, you became his friend and you, you didn't continue your inquiry anymore that day. Correct? No, because I had told him what I needed and he knew what I was expecting to get back and I was under the impression he was leaving to go care for his father. And um, in our firm, we're very family oriented and anytime there's an emergency or something we need to do, we grant the person the time off, and I made the assumption he was going to go take care of that. Right. Then you learned that night Maggie and Paul were murdered. Right. What was your, I think you said um, in your testimony that your initial reaction, you were scared, you were afraid. What were you scared of? Well, when this happened, there was a lot of rumors rolling around. Um, nothing this violent had ever happened. We didn't know who had gone after his family, if somebody was going to come after him, if somebody was going to come to the office and come after him, there was just a lot of dissettlement within the office and constantly having the employees were scared. But your mind didn't go to, gosh, I bet he killed his wife and son because I asked him about the Ferris feed, right? No. Then after that, you, you didn't continue investigating the Ferris feed. You, you let Lee Cope deal directly with Chris Wilson. Lee Cope advised me that he would take over. But the inquiry and the Ferris fee didn't stop because Maggie and Paul were murdered, did it? It did as far as talking to Alec. Well, I mean, Alec told you what he told you, and then the inquiry was, is he telling the truth? And let's deal directly with Chris Wilson, right? Correct. So the inquiry didn't stop with Maggie and Paul's murder, did it? It stopped for a period of time. How long? A couple of weeks. A couple of weeks. Maybe a month. Maybe a month. The death of his wife and son guiding 30 days reprieve on your investigation into the Ferris matter. Is that, is that what happened? Well, it did, and then we received word from Chris. At that point, we still did not receive the documentation, so it did delay receiving the documentation. Now, let's be clear. When you're looking into the Ferris matter and you go in on June 7th, it, it wasn't reported to you by Maggie Murdoch that, hey, I, I think Alex's stealing money. You didn't have any conversation with Maggie about that, did I you? I never have conversations with Maggie. 
Well, Paul, he wasn't involved in any way with the Pharisee, to your knowledge, was he? I never had a conversation with Paul. And then you go, um, and Lee Cope's dealing with Chris Wilson's office, and then turns out that um, Chris Wilson sends an email to Alec saying the money's in my trust account, and Alec forwards it on to you and Lee Cope. So, Correct. And, and once that happened, there, there was no rush to grab the money out of Chris Wilson's trust account, was there? in July of 2021? We did not make the rush at that point because we had enough operating money and we were going to come back to it. Typically, the attorney dealing with that case would handle it, and Ellie was not in the office very much. Okay. So money, the firm had plenty of money to operate, and you just needed to get the money in the, to the firm by the end of the year when you did the bonuses. Is that pretty much how things were being looked at in Ju July of 2021? I don't know that we would have waited till December, but we just were not doing it at that point in that summer. It was actually just near regular summer, both personally and professionally keeping up with other obligations and time frame to get it. And, and so in September of 2021, you're doing your CFO job. You decide that you had this Hertzberger thing, you know, on your desk or I mean, you said it was on your desk. Was it on desktop or you just had a sheet of paper? Well, it's kind of where my important stuff is that I need to get back to. So it's sitting right under a monitor right in front of my face. And, and you, um, you talked about you had a number of commitments and, and it's personal issues. I think you said, I don't want to know about yeah. your personal issues. But what I do want to establish is Maggie and Paul's murder did not cause you to delay in following up on the Hershberger matter, did it? In some ways, yes, because it, the the shock of it and the delay and the things going around the office did, but the true delay came in me finding the time to do it. Yeah, you had a lot of other things going on. Yes. And what you decided to do is to see if there were some other kind of structured fees that Alec had done in in 2021 to, uh, to sort of, like you did the Hershberger case, because you needed to know what his gross collections were and how much he owed it to the firm. And that's why you looked in September 2021, right? Correct. And I'm also still suspicious, you know, in my own mind, I wanted to make sure that he had accounted for everything and that we had indeed collected everything. Right. And so you ran a report at the law firm. Tell us what you did. Well, I started running a report of all the fees that he had collected and started looking through those disbursements. And then it came to me that I could probably shortcut this a little just by printing off the payments to Ford. And then I've started focusing on those first. And that's when I found the checks and the, the information that I found. And that, um, well, well, let's start. Do you remember about what his fee collections were about September of 2021? I've got so many numbers in my head, but they were, they were over a million, probably 20 million and 2 million. Two to three million? A million to two million. Oh, million to two million of fee income that he had collected Correct. when you run this report. And Correct. Did, did that include or not include the 792 on the Ferris case? It did not. So if you had the Ferris case, it could have been over two million? I guess. I can't swear to what his number was. I look at numbers all day long, but that's the recollection of the range he would have been in. After you've learned about this fake Forge account, Alec didn't, I mean, he, and he, re, he was forced to resign from the firm That's the day or the next day, right? The next day. And so that money that came into the firm was used by the firm to pay off some of these victims, right? We have done some of that, yes. Now, the discovery of the fake Forge account when you were sort of, when you ran the report on Forge, that shocked you, didn't it? Yes. That information had been in the systems 
of the law firm going back, I guess, to 2015 when that fake forge account was first opened? I don't know when. The, I don't think it was opened that far back. But I had no reason to suspect anything was going on. We had no clients complaining about money missing. Trusted him. We had no reason to look. That's right. For a lot of people, like I said, myself and us included. And, and, and that's, a, that's a good point. Their clients weren't calling up complaining around June 7th that, hey, y'all need to be looking at Alec because, you know, something's amiss here. That wasn't happening around June 7th, was it? No, and shamefully, when we did talk to the clients, they talked about how much they trusted Alec and how much he thought of them and how that they were shocked and confused by the fact that he had manipulated them and confused them all these years. So it sounds to me like on June 7th, you, you didn't observe some pressure cooker going off within the firm as to how Alec was handling his business. I don't know about anybody else's pressure cooker. I knew I was putting pressure on him to get the answers for the Ferris fees. And it, it was a brotherhood of lawyers that in the past, if they've caught with getting more than what they were entitled to, they had been in the systems for years. Is that correct? Correct. And the tragic murders of Maggie and Paul didn't, didn't do anything to affect what was in your systems. Yeah. Right. And you just started looking because you had had a conversation with Alec back in May about the Hershberger fee going to Forge, not in an appropriate structural, structured manner. And uh, that was in early May. And you never had another conversation with him about that. Right? Well, May and June, in between, it was late May and June, the conversations about both were kind of in tandem. Because every time we would talk about Hirsch affairs, he would bring up, I'm going to structure fees. But I never specifically readdressed the fact that Hershberger did address the fact that he should not be doing this again, and that if he should, he needed to let somebody know. I believe Alec, meanwhile, was going around complaining to my partners about why I was on his case. To his partners? Yes. And the, uh, now just to be clear, the, the Ferris fee money was, you know, it didn't show up on any, any of these reports and it was all paid into the law firm, was it not? It was after, after sometime after September. So here you are on, on September the 3rd and you are um, running a report. You see a lot of forged checks on Alex's client files and you start printing off the check. That's correct. And that's that's how you discovered it. I mean, it was Alex and not only he's signing checks to forge, he's endorsing the checks and putting them into the bank. Correct. And at the same day is when Annette found the check on his office that had been payable to him for the Ferris fees. Yeah, I was going to get to that. So, okay. I mean, that, that was pure coincidence. Yes, the timing, of, the the timing of that is pure coincidence. And Alec, as you understood, was confronted perhaps the next day or that On day? Friday morning. I believe that was Friday the 3rd. So it was the same day that, that you... I did mine on Thursday the 2nd. Okay. So the 2nd, you yes. did yours. On the... Seventh in the afternoon, Alec called you and asked you uh, what his balance was in his law firm retirement plan. Yes, sir. And he told you he was working on the financial disclosure for the voting accident case? Yes. And he had called you on other occasions to get that balance because he was filling out financial statements for one thing or another, right? He had before, yes. Okay. And, um, and let me, do you know... Well, you know he didn't have any life insurance on Maggie or Paul. Do you know that? I have no awareness of that. That's all the questions I have. Creighton Waters rises to begin a brief redirect of Ms. Seconder. Very briefly, Your Honor. You were asked some questions about when you uh, had the conversation about the Ferris fees. And what was your concern then? 
with just the fair fees back at that point in time on June 7th. That he was trying to shelter money from the boat wreck or move assets out of his name or either delay collecting fees. So trying to hide income from the boat wreck. At that point in time, did you have any idea about any of all of this? I did not. You were asked about prior instances in which there had been like the, the loan, the double loan payment and the credit cards, and Alec paid that back, right? That's right. And he paid that back and everything was forgotten, is that correct? That's right. You were asked about whether or not all of this was in your systems. That's correct. And it was in your systems, wasn't it? It was. Since 2011, correct? That's right. And he had gotten away with it all that time? He did. I believe you testified that on June the 7th, 2021, when you went in to talk to Alec Murdoch, that you had your suspicions, correct? I did. And you demanded what? What did you demand? I demanded that? proof that the money was actually in the account. I wanted the ledgers showing the transactions. And did you tell him what you believed? Did you tell him why you wanted that proof? I told him I believed, I had reason to believe that he had received the fee payable to him. You were asked a little bit about the law firm and his father was in the law firm or had been? He had been, yes. Was his grandfather in the law firm? Yes. Was there a long history of, of that family name in this law firm? Yes. Is it the most prominent law firm in the, in the area? I believe so, yes. A very prominent family name? Yes. All this has been in your system since 2011? Yes. Once the murders happened, it didn't seem right to be raising those issues with the defendant then, did it? No, it didn't. I'll leave the witness. After the murders happened, did it seem right to you to raise those issues to the defendant? No, as I stated earlier, we were concerned about the welfare of Alec and the feelings of himself. He was not at work, and we were trying to make sure that he was emotionally okay and able to deal with things before we pressured him about anything. And then just a few weeks later, and still in the, I mean, just in July, you're still in shock from all of these murders? Yes. And did, did ultimately you get an email from Chris Wilson? I did on July 19th. And what did that email say? Chris said that he had the money in the trust available to us. He's got the money, so no big deal, correct? Correct. Did you still, though, in the back of your mind, have some, some suspicions going back for a while? I had suspicions that I didn't really believe that because I'd yet to see the ledger or the proof, and it seemed like there was no reason not to send that to me if something wasn't going on. When ultimately you turned back to these issues and that Chris Wilson check was found, did that result in the uncovering of all of this? It did. Did that result in him losing his job at the law firm? It did. Were his family name had been a fixture there for decades. Correct. That law resulted in him losing his license to practice law. It did. And the defense asked you that. Did that result in him facing a ton of criminal charges based on all of that? Yes. All of that was on the cusp of being uncovered, was it not? Yes. Jim Griffin objects. Judge Newman instructs Waters to not lead the witness. Was that on the cusp of being uncovered? Yes. Judge Newman then invites Jim Griffin to rise for a brief recross of Ms. Seconder. Very briefly, Ms. Seconder, finding the Chris Wilson check was coincidental to your work on the Forge account uh, research, correct? Yes, but as we uncovered the Forge, we knew we had a problem. I understand. And it was the Forge issue that led to all of this. It had eventually been the issue if we'd requested Chris Wilson, regrettably, that we did not in July, we would not have received the money because the money was not in there. We found that out later. Well, we'll find out about that. But the, so Chris Wilson issue is a one-off compared to 
all these other transactions that you brought here today, right? That's right. All right, thank you. You may step down. And with Judge Clifton Newman breaking for lunch, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join us on our next installment as we begin our review of the testimony of Ronnie Crosby, formerly Alex Murdoch's partner in the PMPED law firm. While Mr. Crosby did testify during an in-camera hearing before Judge Newman, unlike the appearance of Ms. Seconder, Mr. Crosby's in-camera testimony was fairly limited, and his testimony at trial was far more detailed and extensive than Ms. Seconder's. Consequently, we will cover Mr. Crosby's questioning before the jury in far greater depth than we did with that of Ms. Seconder. Again, if you would like to review our earlier in-depth coverage of Jeannie Seconder's in-camera testimony, please refer to episodes 48 through 51 of this eighth season of this Jury Duty podcast. Also, check out the Crime Story podcast Night Raid wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.